Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Dr. Edith Widder. Edith Widder is an oceanographer, a marine biologist, and the co-founder, CEO, and senior scientist at the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, a nonprofit organization where she is focusing her passion for saving the ocean into developing innovative technologies needed to preserve and protect the ocean's most precious real estate, its estuaries. She's given three TED Talks and has been awarded a prestigious MacArthur Genius Grant Fellowship, as well as the Explorers Club Citation of Merit. And she is the first recipient of the Captain Don Walsh Award for the Ocean Exploration established by the Marine Technology Society and the Society of Underwater Technology. Welcome to our shelves, Edith. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's great to be here. I think you are our first marine biologist, so this is a very special day for us. <laughs> oh, well, that's a special honor. Wonderful. <laughs> and, and please call me Edie. Oh, okay. Edie, I will do. I love that. I really like the way Edith is shortened to Edie. I was trying to convince a friend of mine to uh, name their newborn daughter Edith the other day. I hope it worked. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Um, anyway, back to more important things. Um, so I spent a rather enjoyable few days uh, being immersed in your wonderful book, Below the Edge of Darkness, Exploring Light and Life in the Deep Sea. Um, and I know nothing about um, oceanography or marine biology. So this completely opened my mind to a whole, like quite literally a whole world that um, many of us know nothing about. It's absolutely fascinating. It's not by any stretch of the imagination a sort of standard memoir, but it does tell the story of your life so far and it, through the, your extraordinary career studying bioluminescence. Um, and for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to have a read of it themselves, and I hope many of them will go out and buy it after they've listened to this episode, I'd love it if you could give us a little, just a little taster of the material therein, um, particularly starting with, for those of us who'd never come across it before, what is bioluminescence and why has this in particular attracted you throughout your career? Why do we need to know more about it? And, and what have you, what have you sort of, I suppose, in sort of very... Um, trying to sum it up is probably quite a, a big thing to ask of you. But tell us what a little bit about what you've learned about it and why you've been so attracted to this particular subject. So bioluminescence is light made by animals. Fireflies are what most people are familiar with. Um, there are a few other land animals that make light, but they're extremely rare on land. 
And I think people just assume that the same is true in the ocean, only it's couldn't be further from the truth. Most of the animals in the open ocean environment make light. You drag a net through the water from a thousand meters to the surface, almost anywhere, and the majority of the animals make light. And in many places, it's as many as 90% make light. And it's all about this world that is actually most of the living space on our planet. And yet most people don't have any knowledge of what it means to live on an ocean planet. So there's no hiding places out there. And so animals have evolved to hide in the dark. And then they come up where photosynthesis occurs to feed under cover of darkness. So they spend all of their life in near darkness or just below the edge of darkness. And they've evolved all of these amazing visual communication tricks using light that they make themselves to help them find food, to attract mates, to defend against predators. I got hooked on this um, because I was actually studying neurobiology for my PhD and um, got the opportunity to work with a bioluminescent dinoflagellate, a single-celled organism. And I got more and more interested in how it made light and why it made light. And I had this predisposition towards being fascinated by vision and light because of an experience in um, my college years when I went in for a spinal fusion that went very wrong and I ended up going blind for a while and my vision came back gradually and I had a lot of time to think about what means to be able to see and what we use to define the world around us and so there were a combination of factors that came together. And then uh, soon after I finished my, or while I was finishing my PhD, my major professor got this really great new spectrometer that could measure the color of light. And I've always been kind of a gadget freak and I just couldn't keep my hands off it when he got it in the lab. And I became kind of the lab expert on it. And he said, well, now that you know how to make this thing work, I think we need to start sending you to sea to measure all these animals in the ocean that make light that nobody's ever been able to measure before. And since I was 11 years old, I wanted to be a seagoing marine biologist, but um, I had kind of thought, well, nobody actually gets to do that. <laughs> it's too, too much of a dream career, right? It was, it was really too much of a dream career. And suddenly I was the thing I'd always wanted to be, a seagoing marine biologist, and just blown away by the animals that we were collecting. I just couldn't believe all these crazy, wonderful animals with dangling lures and built-in flashlights and light camouflage techniques. And it was just crazy, crazy stuff. And we were um, studying them by capturing them in a net. And that's how we know most about life in the ocean is we drag nets behind ships pull them up into our world where we're comfortable, but sadly they're not. Mm. Um, but even then, you know, they were enough alive that I could see them producing light, you know, pulling a shrimp out of the trawl bucket and having it squirt luminescence into my hand that then dripped between my fingers and into the water of the trawl bucket. It was just absolutely mesmerizing. And as a consequence of starting to go to sea to measure these colors of light, I got invited to be part of a team that was testing a new type of uh, way of exploring the deep ocean using a diving suit called WASP. Mm. Um, 
it's not that that's an acronym. It's just somebody thought it looked like the insect, a big yellow <laughs> body and a big bulbous head and pincers for arms. And it was actually developed for the offshore oil industry for diving on oil rigs down to 2,000 feet. And so we were testing it as a tool for ocean exploration. And we got trained in a tank in Port Wainimi, uh, California. And our first real test was a deep dive. Um, and it was in the Santa Barbara Channel. Mine was an evening dive. And I was going to go down to 800 feet. Mostly they just wanted to make sure you didn't freak out have a claustrophobic meltdown. Um, and so I went down to 800 feet and I turned out the lights because I knew I would see bioluminescence. I didn't discover it. It's been known for a very long time. Um, but I was just completely unprepared for what I saw. It was like Van Gogh's starry night just swirling all around me. And I just couldn't believe how much light was being produced. And I knew enough about it by this point to know how much energy it took mm. and energy is not wasted in life and in nature. And I felt like this has got to be one of the most important processes in the ocean. Why aren't more people studying it? And so I've been studying it ever since. It's absolutely fascinating. And I think as I was reading your book, one of the things I think that jumped out to me first of all was exactly how you just explain it now, that first dive that you took. And then when the light, you know, when you suddenly saw the amount of bioluminescence around you, this kind of beauty and the way that you describe these moments of real beauty and wonder, though, because I think often sometimes people think that science is sort of the, you know, the you think in terms of wonder and beauty and kind of things that you can't explain. And then science being this uh, very rational way of uh, sort of pragmatically approaching things. But I think that you marry the two in the book um, so wonderfully. And I don't want to kind of go, I don't want to kind of give away too much for readers who haven't yet come to it. But is there one particular thing that you've seen throughout your career that really has been the sort of astonishing the most astonishing thing that you've seen underwater? Or are there too many things to choose from? There's a lot to choose from, but the one that's intrigued me for most of my career is something that hasn't really even been published about that much. And it's something that only people that go down in submersibles and bother to turn out the lights have ever seen. Um, and it's called the flashback phenomenon. And if you're in darkness and you flash a light outside the sub, actually it works much better if it's two or three pulses of light. Mm. It's like the whole galaxies of light just light up all around you. They flash back and they do it all in synchrony. They come on and then they fade away. And it it's breathtaking. It's one of those things that's incredibly difficult to describe mm. because it's like being under a desert sky at night but now imagine that instead of being under the sky you're surrounded by all of those stars and they've all winked on together and come and faded out together and it's life and it's communicating something to you something very very important that I want to understand because I know how much energy is involved and I have a hypothesis that I put forth in the book, which I won't try to detail here, um, about what it might be. But the fact that there's something that incredible occurring in our ocean 
it's clearly showing life and the carbon pump and all of the things that we're very concerned about with understanding what sustains life on Earth. And it hasn't even been described, let alone filmed. And so it's just amazing that there's so much of our planet that we have not explored yet and don't even begin to understand. And yet we're messing with our life support systems in truly alarming ways without any concept of how they really are supposed to work to sustain us and certainly no concept of how to repair them. Mm. I mean, that's one of the things that comes across so clearly, I think, throughout the, the book is this idea that so little money in the whole scheme of things, right, has been pumped into trying to explore the oceans. And so this is a huge, you know, big part of our planet, which we still have very, very little idea about, right? Like you're sort of only on the cusp of, there's so much more you could do, I presume, with more time, with more money, with more kind of, you know, uh, resources at your fingertips. And yet, as you make a point in the book, we pump kind of, you know, millions and millions of pounds, dollars into the space race and things, you know, exploring the, uh, exploring away from our world. And yet we haven't got a grip on what's beneath the surface of the water here, right? Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I've been a sci-fi junkie, uh, for a very long time. I, I, you know, I love the concept of exploration, any exploration. Um, but I think we have to make some tough choices right now. Yeah. And, and we need to be exploring our own planet before we're spending money and for that matter, carbon, Mm. Um, going out into space, uh, it it just doesn't make sense with the rate at which things are deteriorating faster than most of the models have predicted, and it's pretty alarming. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, this is something I want to come back to a little bit um, later in our in our talk today, if I may. Um, but for the time being, I want to move on to our first question that we put to you before the show. Can we go to talking about uh, the two books that are currently on your bedside table right now, Edie? So as it happens, I'm usually reading at least two books at once. Perfect. Um, <laughs> and so um, I'm reading um, All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Dewar, which is uh, just an absolutely remarkable book. Uh, I, uh, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. He's just put these pieces together describing, um, this, uh, French girl who's blind and a German boy, um, whose paths cross and, and he's, he alternates their stories. Mm. Uh, but it's just an exquisite piece of writing and it's intriguing. I, because of this concept of, well, first of all, they, they're getting across this idea of electromagnetic radiation, which in most of the cases is they're talking about is radio waves, mm. which is the, the light you cannot see, um, and carrying messages and, and how, how we communicate with each other and try to help each other through our communications. So it's a beautiful book, just exquisite. And the other one is uh, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey, which are the caracaras. Um, and I, I'm intrigued by smart animals of any kind. I, I've had a fascination for crows for a long time because their stories um, of how clever they are yeah. just um, fascinates me. And the caracaras are even more bizarre. They have amazing memories. Really? Um, 
Yeah. Um, and uh, they, the um, author describes a, a bird um, that somehow ended up in England. They don't belong in England, but um, probably got there illegally. Um, <laughs> but a falconer um, started working with it and just got, he'd never had a caracara before. Um, and he just was astonished at what this bird could do. And so he had, for example, toys um, uh, like uh, a little Nemo fish and uh, I don't remember what it was, a puppy and something else, a, a chicken. Or he, I think he had names for each of them. And he'd throw them out and um, then tell the bird or have the audience tell the bird which toy to get. And it would know it by name and go collect it and put it in a bucket. Wow. And he, and he could stop in the middle and say, no, I've changed my mind and <laughs> give another one. Uh, there were a bunch of things like that that just were astonishing capabilities. Uh, Darwin was intrigued by these birds because they um, uh, were so clever and so mischievous and you know, would steal people's hats. They seemed to have a very high degree of curiosity. So it's a, it's a, it's a very neat book. And is this um, sort of a, a standard balance for how your reading shapes up, having one fiction, one nonfiction title on your bedside table? Do you tend to read more of one or the other? Uh, for a long time, I read only nonfiction, and I've only recently started to go back to fiction. Um, and I, I'm uh, enjoying that. I think it makes me sleep better at night. What do you think, what kept you away from it for so long? Uh, just a sense of there's not enough time in the day and I need to be learning something <laughs> right now. Yeah. Not enough time for these made up stories. You need to be yeah. reading, <laughs> reading the factual stuff. <laughs> I like that. I like that. But you think that it makes you, it makes you sleep better if you're reading a good novel, perhaps. Yes, it does. It definitely yeah. does. I, I'm interested by your choice. I, I don't know if it's just a coincidence, but I was thinking when I saw you'd, uh, you'd recommended all the light we cannot see, it seems like a very, um, it seems like a good book for you in terms of from what I can, uh, what I've learned from you about, you know, reading your own book. There's a character who's blind, which is something you're clearly quite interested in because of your own experiences and the sort of scientific element of it. I don't know if I'm just presuming too much on that. That's exactly why I was attracted to it. I was <laughs> just looking for, you know, an interesting book and yeah. something different. And that seemed incredibly different. And it, it seemed right up my alley. And it, it took me a little while to get into it. Mm. Um, but now I'm just totally absorbed mm. and would you say that the time that when you weren't reading um a lot of fiction are you reading much more non-fiction did you tend to read around your own field and subject or would you read as widely as possible like the sort of book of um of the smartest birds of prey that seems kind of outside of your obvious expertise but you're still very interested yeah in that's still an area of interest i mean it, you know biology yeah things things related to biology i certainly you wouldn't catch me reading a geology book i think <laughs> Okay. You draw the line at rocks. I like yeah, I do. <laughs> I like that. Uh, next up, we asked you to talk about a recent article, podcast, film, series, or song that's made you think. And you've chosen a film for us, I think, that sounds really fascinating. Can you tell me about you, more? You haven't seen it? You have I see haven't it. seen it yet, no. So it's a documentary um, called Picture a Scientist. And um, it... Uh, it absolutely made my blood boil. I mean, I, and I'm, I'm not that active per se in the feminist movement. Um, I've obviously had to deal with issues, 
Mm. Um, as a, a woman, very often in the early days of my career, the only woman on the ship. Um, so I can relate to some of these issues. Um, but the, they uh, highlight several women scientists and what they went through. Um, uh, s several of them are pretty well known and, and um, uh, they ha have led to studies about, for example, the amount of space given to a scientist um, at MIT. Uh, women scientists were given much less than men. And, you know, at the, at the time of um, uh, this one scientist being there, um, Nancy Hopkins in 1994, I think there were 15 tenured women faculty in the six departments of MIT School of Science compared to 194 men. Um, so those sorts of statistics and studies obviously are um, important to understand the, the factors that are robbing us of potential talent in the field. Mm. Um, but the, um, the one that made my blood boil was uh, Scripps Institute geologist Jane Willenbring. Um, and what she went through as a graduate student uh, with um, uh, a, an advisor who was incredibly demeaning and sexist um, to her. She had, she was doing field work in Antarctica and as somebody who's been at in the field, you know, and outnumbered considerably by men. I understand a lot of what she went through, but it, it's just so much worse than anything I've ever heard of. Um, and it's, you know, an indication for uh, women who may think that we're, we may be past a lot of the worst of this, that not so much. Yeah. It's um, from what I've read about it, and like I say, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm I'm very desperate to now you've brought it to my attention. But it seems like there's a huge amount of resilience as much as it's pinpointing, you know, the, the sort of horrors that a lot of these women had to put up with at various points in their career. It's clearly also highlighting the huge resilience that these women, I mean, have put up, you know, put up with over the years in staying in the fields that they're in and continuing to bring and bring attention to the, some of the problems, the sexism they're dealing with. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, these people were, were often pioneers. Um, the the Jane Willenberg story is interesting because she took action, I think it was something like 17 years after the mistreatment, and it was because she had a daughter, and she started to realize she couldn't just let it go, um, which was really her only option at the time. If your major professor is a jerk, mm you're in trouble because that's your conduit to further appointments. He's got to be writing you your letters of recommendation. You're, you're in deep trouble. If, yeah. And so anyone thinking about graduate school needs to think very hard about who their major professor is going to be, because you're going to be joined at the hip mm. for the rest of your career. You say that this isn't something that you've um, been particularly vocal about in your field. And I must admit, I was intrigued while reading uh, reading uh, Below the Edge of Darkness, that you never sort of talk particularly about being the lone woman on the ship in, in, in very explicit terms. But I did notice that there weren't many, every time you mentioned colleagues, it's like sort of 99% men, right? This is clearly a very male-dominated field that you've been working in for many years. And, you know, clearly you've been very resilient and kind of risen to the top of it. But how, kind of broadly sense, how, how did that feel when you started out particularly? Well, I, I think I mentioned in the book that I feel like I had a secret weapon in the form of my mother 
as yeah. a role model. She was just an absolutely amazing woman who, you know, a Canadian farm girl from um, Saskatchewan who uh, spent her entire youth going to school on horses, with horses. Uh, she once calculated that she spent 20,000, she covered, covered 20,000 miles um, using horses to get her education. Um, and, uh, and then ended up getting a PhD in mathematics from Bryn Mawr College. Mm. Um, so they say in a lot of these studies about, you know, why girls lose interest in science or, you know, the hard sciences um, is because they don't have role models. Mm. And I, I had a built-in role model and, and, and it, it gave me a lot of inner strength that I never doubted myself. Mm. And I, I've seen women who end up doubting themselves um, because they're not getting that kind of support on the home front. In fact, they're even being questioned, you know, by their own parents sometimes about yeah. why would you want to do this? And that's got to be just a hundred times worse. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I really appreciate what these women have had to go through. I've definitely been exposed although I would say uh, on the average I've been very lucky mm. with um, my colleagues um, I've, I've had some some really great mentors along the way um, and uh, so I'm not I'm not complaining um, I have a lot of women friends who tell me stories that just make my eyes pop um, mm. and I feel just so lucky that I never had to deal with some of the things they describe. Have you seen in recent years more women coming into your industry, and particularly your field? Yeah, there's a lot more women coming into marine science. Um, I don't know what the statistics are mm. and how many stay on, uh, and you know, because I know there is a, a high level of attrition still. Yeah, and one of the things I gathered about this um, about picture a scientist, and, and do correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seemed that there was. Um, one of the sort of main thrusts of the argument, as well as that how many people are we not letting have a seat at the table? How many kind of very talented women are being put off, um, you know, or not allowed to you know, thrive in this industry because of the sexism and misogyny over the years? Um, and I kept, and while I was reading that, I kept thinking about back to the very end of, um, of your book, Below the Edge of Darkness, when you talk about um, you end it on such a hopeful note, which uh, though you say that, you know, if you need to be an optimist, if you're, you know, as an environmentalist today, you need to believe that you can make a difference. That's very important. Um, but I feel that as someone like myself, who doesn't have an awful lot to do with with science, um, however, I spend quite a lot of my time reading scientific, what I would kind of loosely class as scientific kind of um, newspaper stories, whether it's about climate catastrophe or COVID or these kind of things, these are often very depressing and it feels very, um, it feels very hopeless a lot of the time at the moment. But then I think maybe I'm just not seeing a lot of the innovation that's going on in the kind of broader scientific world. I mean, you are, you say you're an optimist, but are you hopeful about the future and about how not just women, but kind of, you know, scientists in general are going to save us all? Maybe I'm asking for too much. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think something I learned in the hospital was that you have to work at optimism. Mm. And it, it doesn't mean that I'm not realistic about what we're facing. Yes. Um, but there is this tendency, as you say, 
for the doom and gloom to just shut people down. They just feel hopeless. What can I possibly do? And, you know, I think we may not be going at this the right way. Sure, we have to let people know just how dangerous the situation is and what we are facing. But one of our greatest characteristics as a species is our curiosity Mm. and our need to explore. And I think we need to be um, working towards our talents and our strengths instead of our weaknesses and just, you know, beating people down with how many mistakes we've made isn't going to do the trick. And if we can tap into the explorer in all of us, the explorer in you that makes you want to read these books and understand more about the world you live in. Those, those are the things that we need to be nurturing. I, f- I think, to be honest, I found your book one of the most hopeful books I've read in recent years about anything to do with the sort of environment or I maybe it is because there's so much kind of bad, bad press, which, like you say, it does need to be out there. We do need to realise where we're going wrong. But I think I had just almost given up on finding stories where people were saying, well, no, we can work hard at this and, you know, maybe we can do something about it. And we've got the ability to do it if we kind of funnel it in the right direction. I, I think, you know, we, we have to get that message out there, especially to young people, because mm. um, it's sad when they've already lost hope and they're not even out of high school. That's that's just unconscionable. Yeah, absolutely. Our shells be back in just a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm talking to Dr. Edith Wither about having hope and optimism, which is very important right now. Um, next up, Edie, if I may, I would like to, you to tell me about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way. Oh, that was The Women's Room um, mm. by, by Marilyn French. Uh, I read it um, not when it first came out. Uh, I was in graduate school at the time when I read it. Um, and it did make me angry. <laughs> it, it, did, it did make my blood boil. And I didn't come from a situation, as I said, that was repressive at all. But it just made me aware of how much subtle stuff there was mm. that was holding women back. And um, I think it's a book that should be read by the modern generation, even though 
they may not be facing the same challenges, they really need to know how far we've come in a very, very short period of time so that they don't take these things for granted. Because we fought really hard for a lot of these rights and lose rights as soon as you start taking them for granted. So it was published in 1977 and you didn't, you read it short, shortly after that when you were? I think it was in the 80s. That in I the read 80s. It. Maybe early 80s. And when you say that it made you angry, did it make you, it made you angry because you realised what, like you say, you had never, you hadn't been particularly aware of? I don't know, at this point, did you feel that as a, as a woman that you were disadvantaged? Clearly not, because you were, you had your great role model and your mother, and you were sort of doing what you wanted to do with life. But this clearly still struck a chord with you. Yeah, this was more for my um, fellow women scientists, uh, and women in general, I just, um, as I said, I had been able to rise above a lot of this, I'd certainly been exposed to it, but it didn't, it, it pretty much rolled off my back. Mm. But just having it all presented in one place like that and, you know, recognizing some of the stuff that I had ignored and maybe shouldn't have even just um, uh, all in, what, in one dose. What do you mean by that? Can I sort of probe a little bit? Oh, well, I had, I had a boss um, at Harvard Medical School. I worked there for two years before I um, went out to California. Um, and uh, he would just hold forth all the time about how uh, women didn't have the spark of genius for true innovation, um, and that wow. uh, that a woman's role was to act as a stabilizing a- agent for geniuses such as himself. Uh, <laughs> I'm and, sorry. And, <laughs> yeah. How did was, you keep a straight face? Oh, <laughs> he he was he had a temper. Really bad. Yeah. Uh, he could actually throw a beaker across the lab in a fit of rage. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, it was it, actually the hardest thing for me with him was because I had these amazing academic parents who were intellectuals and just incredible people. I had never been yelled at. <laughs> And so, you know, the first few times he yelled at me, I just thought I must have committed the sin of a lifetime. Yeah, that must have been awful. Oh, it was pretty bad. Yeah, I got pretty stressed by it. Um, And, you know, I I wish I'd had the backbone to stand up to him more, although I'm not sure what good it would have done. But um, it just was very unpleasant for all of us. (laughs) I guess one of the things about um, sort of younger generation and maybe that's why you say sort of reading something like the women's room would be very useful for a lot of us, um, particularly because I think one of the things that maybe we struggle to get our heads around, or I certainly have, is that idea of maybe not having anywhere to voice those um, those sort of opinions or to have the ability to. You tell that story now. My first impression is to sort of laugh at it and to think what a terrible person, because I can imagine discussing someone like that with my other female friends. And we all sort of, you know, think he's a he's a figure of fun, as it were. But to be working in that kind of environment and not have any sort of resources around you to be able to complain, to do anything about it. I mean, those things still happen today. People still, act, you know, there's a lot of misogyny still around, but I feel like there is at least places you can go and you can talk about it. And it's, you know, there are ways in which you can understand that it's not you, it's the, the person who's doing, who's behaving appallingly. Um, but to not have those sorts of resources, that must have been very strange, a very different experience. Yeah, um, it's, 
it seems strange, stranger now from a distance. Mm. Um, I, uh, I mean, I felt lucky to have a job, <laughs> so, <laughs> a job in science, you know, it, it, it was, it was kind of a, a, a choice position. Um, mm. but yeah, it was tough. I feel like the women's room as well is one of those brilliant novels, um, from this, from the seventies that sort of people talk about as feminist classics. Now they're sort of recognized, maybe not read as often as they should be. I think I only read it for the first time last year and I did find oh, it very really? eye opening. Yeah. I, I mean, I really liked it. I couldn't, I was sort of embarrassed that I hadn't got around to reading it before now, because I think it was one of those books, which I always thought I kind of knew what it was about. And then when I read it, I was really quite, I was quite shocked by how lengthy the, um, the sort of first section where the main character is still a housewife. And before she sort of had her moment of reckoning and, and, and sort of gone back into, um, gone back to she goes back to study and, and becomes a, an academic and things uh and I was I was really taken by I mean I thought it was a brilliant book um but it strikes me that it's one of those did you when you read it were you reading a lot of other sort of feminist fiction from the period no, or not no. no I can't can't even remember why I picked it up um but uh yeah no I hadn't I hadn't read a lot of um feminist literature um, and have you read it since or have you only read it no, that one time no I only read it that one time fascinating I'm always intrigued if people go back to these books and whether they mean they never mean quite the same thing second time round. but what one's impressions would be after years and years of, of revisiting a book that's so important at a particular point point. and then finally today um, Edie I'm asking you about uh, a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire and you've already talked a little bit about um, this person but tell me more uh, so, um, well, I, since this is a literary crowd, I can use a literary reference. My mom re reminds me of Marmee in Little Women. Oh, wow. Okay. She sounds wonderful. If that's she, all you need to say. <laughs> she, she was wonderful, um, incredibly capable. And uh, when I was little, I used to make her tell me stories over and over again about growing up on the farm. Uh, you know, I loved horses. I wanted to have a horse in the worst way. And so, you know, she, she'd tell me about going out in the middle of the winter to, to harness up old Doc, which was this big old workhorse that they, they used to take them into school by a sleigh. Wow. And, and old Doc used to step on your foot when you were trying to get the harness on him. And you'd have to pick up your other foot to kick him to get it off your foot. They were just farm stories, you know, um, the time the buggy turned over, the, you know, just great stories. But I didn't know it at the time, of course, but I was learning about competence and how mm -hmm. to deal with problems. So one of the stories uh, was actually um, after she had gotten her bachelor's degree from the University of um, Saskatoon, I mean, University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, um, and a gold medal in honors in mathematics. And she came back to help out on the farm and she was out in the field with a team of horses pulling a plow or a binder, or I can't remember what which, um, and the harness broke on a team of four. And the neighbor in the next field saw she was in trouble and came running over to help and by the time he'd gotten there she had haywired the harness back together and was back up behind the team and he looked at her kind of appraisingly and he said well I guess getting an education ain't so bad so long as you can still do something useful <laughs> that's a wonderful story 
that's a wonderful story. Tell me though, what was it? Do you, this seems like was it quite a surprise? Was it quite an anomaly for her to come from this background and go off to college, let alone go off and then get a PhD in maths? Was this unusual? Oh my God, she was born in 1909. It was unheard of. It was just okay. absolutely incredible. And so what was it that made, what was it about her or about the family that she came from that allowed for this incredible thing to happen? So both of her parents, my grandparents, I, I don't think either of them, you know, I know neither of them finished high school. Um, but they they um, valued education and they taught that to all of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, they there were five kids um, and they helped each other um, with money or with whatever they could to, to get their educations. Um, and she just was brilliant in mathematics. And so it just, you know, one thing led to another and she was offered a full... Uh, scholarship or fellowship to um, Bryn Mawr, um, which is just amazing. And, and the, I, I wish I, I had a better recollection of the story about her going to Bryn Mawr, but she, I don't think she'd ever been out of um, Saskatchewan. And she had to get on a train and she had all of her money pinned inside her clothing. Sensible. And and she knew no, nobody at the other end. Gosh. Uh, and, you know, she knew she wouldn't be able to come home for a very long time because there wasn't enough money. Um, and it was just the most amazing adventure I can ever imagine. I mean, I thought of it when I, when I was going off to, to hunt the giant squid because uh, I was going on an expedition off Japan where I knew nobody aboard the ship. Mm. And I thought, this is nothing <laughs> compared to what my mom was dealing with. Well, I was going to say, clearly, the, you know, you got your your love of exploration and kind of intrepid uh, adventure from her. She clearly was there paving the way for you in in slightly different uh, environment, but no less intrepid, right? Sure. And then um, because uh, um, my dad uh, would get sabbaticals every seven years, we would travel. And so I got a lot of traveling that um, helped intru- increase that tendency. Well, your mother sounds like a wonderful woman, and um, clearly she's uh, well, she's responsible for you, and so that's impressive in itself. So, <laughs> let alone anything else. Um, thank you so much, Edie. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and I encourage everyone to get out there and learn about. The world below the edge of darkness. I found it, yeah, like I said, absolutely fascinating book and something I knew nothing about beforehand, which is rarity to read something like that. So thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Edith Widder, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture.